Hello, and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Bant, and along with me on this journey revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Masick. Hello, Jason. Bill, as soon as that car leaves in the morning, I'm going over that fence and I'm not coming back till I find a dead body. Nobody knocks off an old man in my neighborhood and gets away with it. That's right, listeners. Today we'll be discussing, with spoilers aplenty, the 1989 comedy The Burbs, starring Tom Hanks, Rick Dukeman, and Carrie Fisher. Directed by Joe Dante, this movie is rated PG with a running time of one hour and 42 minutes. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. Tom Hanks portrays suburbanite Ray Peterson, whose plans for a peaceful vacation are disturbed by a creepy new family on the block in this outrageous suspense comedy directed by Joe Dante. To the disappointment of his wife, Carol, Carrie Fisher, Ray decides to spend a relaxing week at home and soon gets into trouble with his neighbors, a hefty busybody, Rick Duckerman, a freaked out ex-soldier, Bruce Stern, and a spacey teenager, Corey Feldman, as they observe the strange happenings next door at the Klopex Bazaar residence. When the neighborhood grouch suddenly disappears, the men are convinced the ramshackle house hides some hideous clues. Armed with assault rifles, high-powered binoculars, and a shovel, they decide to see for themselves exactly what is going on in the Klopek place. Set in the average neighborhood that is anything but average, the Burbs blends slapstick comedy and spine-tingling mystery with the type of witty humor that has made Tom Hanks one of today's most popular stars. The Burbs. The burps. There you go. The burps. The burps. The burps. Yeah, supposedly this, you know, it's interesting. This film actually starts with, you'd see the globe, of course, that comes from the Universal Studios uh, shingle. And then the globe, You we zoom in. And I wanted to pinpoint because it zooms in on North America, then the United States of America. And we know that this is going to be somewhere in the Midwest, right? I'm trying to pinpoint where is it exactly. And supposedly... It's not Chicago. Right. But it's clearly not Chicago. But then the plates on some of the vehicles in the movie are Chicago or uh, Illinois plates. Right. So they assume you're to assume it's the Chicago area or a Chicago suburb, but can't be from where they zoom in on the US of A in the very beginning graphic. Anyway, the burbs. It's good to be here doing the burbs with you, Bill Bant. Thank you. We are coming to you from the burbs. No, we are not. <laughs> not even close. All right. Let's get this baby rolling. All right. So let's talk about some of our earliest memories of the burbs. Jason, what do you got for us? Funny enough, Bill Band, I can't say I have many, if any, early memories of this film. I couldn't recall a damn thing. Really? Okay. I knew I've seen it. I know I've seen it multiple times. And I recall that as a kid. Well, this is 1989. Mm-hmm. So uh, I recall that when I was younger, still yet a, well, gosh, 73. So I was just a teenager, uh, barely a teenager. I recall that I had anticipated this film because Tom Hanks was in it. I also recall that this movie just wasn't quite what I was expecting. I don't know what I was expecting, but this wasn't it. And that doesn't mean that it was necessarily bad. It was just kind of weird. I may have been expecting a 
a little bit more of um, upbeat comedy or more comedy infused into this film instead of this kind of strange brew of goofy horror black comedy. Uh, so, you know, as a 12, 13 year old, I just didn't know what I was getting into. That's all. I do have residual images of the neighborhood and the strange goings on. And of course, Tom Hanks and Rick Dickman is neighborhood or neighbor who plays art and a vague recollection of Carrie Fisher, of course, because me being a Star Wars fan, hey, Princess Leia's in this. This is cool to see her not being Princess Leia. Yep. Again, it's strange because I definitely recall watching this multiple times on cable, but couldn't remember really a damn thing. I have a strange feeling that I really wanted to like this movie when I was younger, and I found things that were entertaining about it. But obviously, yeah, I should say, obviously, there was something that made it rewatchable, that it did have highlights. And I have to admit, Bill Bant, this would have been way down on the list of 80s movies for us to cover on this podcast. So I was intrigued by this choice. This was your choice to do this. And uh, I'm blaming you. So uh, those are my early memories or lack thereof. How about you, Bill Bant? Okay, um, so we've mentioned before on our previous podcast with Tom Hanks, Splash. I'm a huge, huge Tom Hanks fan in the 80s. Oh, yeah. Huge, huge, huge. Bosom buddies on. Just anything he was in, I was excited for it. I didn't care if it was a TV interview or he was hosting Friday Night Videos. I was watching it. So anytime a Tom Hanks movie was coming out, I was super excited. And I remember just waiting to see what this movie was about and how it was going to do and I just remember seeing all the reviews and they were just crushing this movie. <laughs> this was just not good at all. But I was like, hey, it's Tom Hanks. I don't care. I definitely want to see it. And then I remember in the newspaper in the weekly um, section, like I think it was every Tuesday, it would come out with the box office numbers. And when the movie came out, it was number one. We'll talk about it later in the box office. And then next thing you know, it wasn't even in the top 10. You're like, whoa. Okay. So it, it didn't even do well fan reaction. But as soon as that movie came out on video, I certainly rented it. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching it and I was kind of, eh. Yeah. But like you, I must have watched about 10, 15 more times on cable. Every time I was on, I would just watch it. Right. And it was just interesting to maybe now that I'm an adult and having the family life, maybe going back and looking at this, it would change my perspective of the movie. Not so much. <laughs> I'm right there with you. Nothing wrong with that. But yeah, yeah, but it was, yeah, it was all interesting. The movie really does just take place on that one uh, city block. They don't ever really leave the block throughout the film. So right. That was kind of neat. I knew like back then Rick Dukeman was kind of becoming a thing. Like he was in a whole bunch of little bit parts. You would see him kind of everywhere. And this is one of his bigger roles. Just like you, the fact that Carrie Fisher was in it. I was excited to see that. You know, we have Corey Feldman. I think it was really my first introduction to Bruce Dern. I don't really remember him in anything else before then. He has a huge film biography, of course, but I think that's really the first time I remember really seeing him in something. And then just the whole house and digging for the holes and the dead bodies and Mm -hmm. mistaken identity kind of stuff. Yeah, I do remember that. And I don't know. It's just one of those movies you just kind of watch. But yeah, when you're rating Tom Hanks movies, this is not something you're putting high up on the list. But for some reason, it has garnered a cult classic status. Right. So I was interested in going back and revisiting just to kind of see why that is. And, you know, let's see. 
we'll see what the burbs is all about. Yeah, good call, Bill. I'm again, I'm glad you chose this because this movie has its place. It is a movie from the 80s. We should cover it. That's what we do. That's our job. <laughs> and not all of them are going to be gems. That's a fact. But we watched this movie again multiple times. It's part of our childhood. We kept going back to it for some reason. And a lot of it, I think, is due to Tom Hanks. That's the power he had. So I appreciate what you were saying regarding the Tom Hanks fandom. I was part of it. I was living it. I was all about it. I was on the Tom Hanks bandwagon for sure. He is the ultimate everyman, relatable, every guy whom just could play all range of emotions. And it's just a wonderful actor. Just seems like a guy you'd want to get a beer with and could become easy friends with. And, you know, I won't get right into our initial thoughts then, since uh, if that's okay. Yeah, go ahead. Because we'll talk about the cast a little bit here, right from the top as to uh, where they're at at this time in 1989. And to give our audience a little bit of perspective, you know, Tom Hanks, just so damn likable. This is right after Big and Punchline. But I mean, Big was big. Yes, definitely. Very big. And he gets nominated for Best Actor. So he's on a run. And then we have the Burbs. And right after that, Turner and Hooch and Joe versus the Volcano. And then it's like Sleepless in Seattle and all. I mean, it's he's on a a serious run that goes well into the 90s, of course. Uh, So Tom Hanks, you know, one of one. Uh, you'd mentioned Rick Dukeman. You know, I recall some of his stand-up. I actually did go back and watch a little bit of a, a stand-up he did for Comic Relief. Uh, he was very good, and we lost him too soon. He passed away yes. really young due to diabetes. He was only 62. Then you mentioned Bruce Stern. And to be honest, I've never been a really a Bruce Stern fan. And I'm just being honest. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't dislike him. I haven't really watched a lot of Bruce Stern, but this is probably one of the first roles uh, – I saw him in just like yourself. I think he's a fine actor and he's well-respected in the industry. So uh, I actually saw him at a post office in Pasadena years ago. (laughs) I had a Bruce Stern sighting once. Nice. Corey Feldman, as you mentioned, serious head of lettuce on that kid. Oh, yeah. It's always fun to see either of the Corys. Corey Feldman, again, just had that great early 80s run and he brings a lot of energy kind of has a natural ability about him. I found it for a certain time there in the eighties. So Carrie Fisher looks great in this. She does. She had, you know, she had already been in the man with one red shoe co-starring none other than Tom Hanks. And then this same year is in when Harry met Sally, uh, one of the best romantic comedies of all time. And then I got to give a shout out to our guy, Courtney Gaines. I know we're running out of Courtney Gaines movies. <laughs> Jesus. Not just much left. Like, the Courtney Gaines podcast. Oh, we should. Gotta love that guy. How many lines does he have in this? Two, three actual lines, spoken lines? My favorite of the movie is the It Came With The Frame. And that's my favorite one. <laughs> but yeah. It's, uh, Sardines is another line. Yeah. Ooh, he tells them his name. Yeah, he might Hans. have less than 10 lines. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But he is donning the wicked neck beard. He's got oh, the beard. yeah. Got an awesome red fuzzy neared in this. He's like an Amish reject. Yeah. <laughs> Courtney Gaines. Love that guy. Mordecai from Children of the Corn. Outlanders! And of course, uh, best friend to Patrick Dempsey. Yep. Can't buy me love. You shit on my house. 
It's funny, Bill, Ben. I'm watching this and right from the get, I'm like this whole block that they live in, I guess it's uh, Mayfield Place. The whole block feels completely like a back lot of a movie studio. I mean, it looks like a back lot. Yes, it does. The way it's lit, everything about it, it's, way, it's always too pristine. It's very, it has the feel of like the houses are just kind of been placed there, but they're fronts. And obviously some of them have interiors as we see in the film, but it really does have a back lot feel and stepping on our fun facts and trivia. Well, yeah, it's all on the back lot of Universal Studios. Yes. And it looks like it. Fake lamps, you know, it just has that feel, which it'd still be fun to walk around. They shot a ton of stuff right there in that, yeah. that block. So, you know, I, I, here's an initial thought, man. I love a good ghost story or a good, like a local ghost story, if you will, horror story, something that is a, a true crime story. It's no wonder since I am actually a big true crime fan. I listen to it way, way too many true crime podcasts, big fan of Dateline. So especially when in this film, we have art telling the story about a man named Skip who used, who used to live in the neighborhood, who was a soda jerk and ended up killing his whole family. Yeah. Uh, not a fun subject, but just reminded me of the tall tales you would hear. And that's the per- part of the purpose of telling this story in this film, you know, from Joe Tante's perspective and the writer's perspective. That's why they want to do this is that you grow up in the suburbs, which uh, suburbs, which I did. I, I did grow up in a small town outside of Chicago, uh, population, maybe 7,000 people. And you start, you hear those stories and you start building up things in your head, or you see the neighbor that doesn't come out of their house or the pile, the, the mail is piling up or they don't attend to their lawn, et cetera. And you start extrapolating and having these ideas of who these people might be. And it can drive you a little nutty. But then you hear some of these stories that actually are true and a little scary. There's something about that that's kind of fun when you start thinking about the lore of it all or your imagination kind of runs away with it, especially when you're a kid and you hear these stories, because thankfully, most of them are not true. It's just a rumor, a ghost story started by somebody in the neighborhood, regardless Here's my feeling or my overall, I should say, initial thought about The Burbs is that this is a very average, only slightly amusing movie for me with a few and mostly Tom Hanks highlights. It's not bad. It's just that everything in this movie is literally on the surface. I mean, I understand it's a movie about not really knowing your neighbors, the crazy quirkiness that can occur in suburbanites that live in a small town. And how we can take those quirky idiosyncrasies of our neighbors we witness in passing and extrapolate them, as I mentioned, into bizarre ideas. Because we just, you know, people don't talk to each other. You just observe from a distance. So, I mean, I'll just sum it up here if my what's on the box segment didn't do this already. But here we have an everyman named Ray Peterson, who played by Tom Hanks, and a few of his quirky neighbors. We've got Art who I don't even know what he does, but his wife's out of town for whatever reason. And he's just kind of an, a little bit overweight, quirky, obnoxious neighbor. We've got Bruce Dern, who plays Mark Rumsfeld, who's a Vietnam vet. And just that's all we really know. And Corey Feldman, who's another neighbor who plays Ricky Butler, who's just this kid whose parents are out of town. He's home alone and he's got to paint the house. So they're suspicious of the new neighbors, the Klopex, who live in this house, which is on its surface, strikingly creepy, completely, obviously creepy. Then 
This leads to escalating hijinks until the reveal at the end of whether or not these new neighbors are murderers or not. And that's it. That's all. We're let in a little bit, maybe as to the uh, family dynamic between Ray and Carol, Tom Hanks and Carrie Fisher's situation, but not really that much. So that's it. I mean, that's I literally that's it. We don't get to know any of these characters at all. Their relationships aren't really developed that much. Uh, we understand that they're friends and they're curious about these new creepy neighbors. And that's it. Please add more if, if you'd like, Bill Bant, because I don't know anything else about these people. But uh, this, I will say, some of the Tom Hanks highlights are laugh out loud funny. And I'm sure we'll get to those later. Finally, it still holds my attention that much. I will also say I still had to know what was going to happen. So it must have done something right. Like I had to watch the whole thing still. And I think that's kind of what happened to me as a kid. I was like, I forgot what happens. I need to know who are these people? What do they do? Are they really evil? How about your initial thoughts? I almost want to say this movie is an uninteresting, interesting movie. Mm. Because you meet the neighbors, but you don't feel like they really know each other. And maybe that does happen in neighborhoods. But like the first time... You see Mark played by Bruce Stern and Tom Hanks character, Ray. They almost act like they're strangers to each other. Like they really mm-hmm. don't even know each other. And I thought that was kind of weird. So like you live across the way in a cul-de-sac. You would think they would know each other a little bit better. No one works in this neighborhood, it seems like. Right. I mean, we know Tom Hanks is on a, you know, a staycation. But we don't know why. Yeah, some rumors Initially, I guess, in the initial script that he had lost his job. Right. I was going to get that too. Okay, sorry. No, no, not at all. No, no apology necessary. Yeah. And I wanted to talk about that later because I think this could have been a lot more. Yeah. And there could be reasons for why it wasn't due to, you could chalk it up to the writer's strike at this time. Literally, when this movie went into production. Uh, the writer, I apologize. I can't think of the writer's name right off the Dana something or Dana. Dana Olson. Dana Olson, when he was on set, the strike had begun. So he was not allowed to do any kind of writing. Right. So they had to hire him as an actor so they could talk to him, which is kind of yeah. a good move. Right. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. And I was like, I wonder if that kind of had an effect on the overall process. But there's just nothing going on beneath the surface and the relationships, you don't, like you said, you don't really sense a great deal of camaraderie between these characters or because we know they're sort of banding together in order to approach these creepy neighbors to face this potential evil or darkness that's living next to them in this cul-de-sac. Is that a bonding experience for them? Does that bring them closer together? No, no, it's they're just individuals who have kind of been watching each other from afar a bit. You can you get the sense that Ray and Art are friends because Art obviously comes over to Ray's house, kind of welcomes himself in. Yeah, he knows where everything their, is. Yeah, yeah, and goes into the fridge and is eating their food, etc. But beyond that, we don't get any details of their inner lives. They could have done more with the relationship between Ray and Carol and how or why he'd gotten fired from work and just a little bit more social commentary about the lives of suburbanites and what could potentially lead to a violent you know, situation. You could go pretty dark. Yeah. 
Uh, you know, regardless, we'll get into it later. And I totally went off on a tangent and this is your turn to speak. So what are your other initial thoughts, man? Being the Tom Hanks fan that I am, I didn't feel like Tom Hanks needed to be in this movie at all. Mm. Okay. The standout performances for me in this movie was, which was funny because I remember when I first watched this as a kid, I always thought Bruce Dern was kind of a dick. But for some reason, watching it now, I found him pretty funny. Really? Okay. Yeah, I liked him a lot more in it this time. And then um, Henry Gibson, who played the Dr. Warner Klopek. Klopek, yes. I loved his character. The way he portrayed him, there was just that you could tell there's something underneath the surface, but he's not letting you in. Yeah. There's such a coldness to him, even though he was trying to be welcoming, especially when they come to the house. And right. It's like, oh, it's a pretty good betrayal. Oh, yeah. He's great. He's super creepy. I thought he was really good. So the two of them I thought were excellent. But yeah, you were right too. Tom Hanks playing a dad, but he never really interacts with this kid. No. You don't see that much with Carrie Fisher either. She's criminally underused. Oh, big time. And then I always thought it was kind of weird too, is you have, so they're in a cul de sac, and then you have, you know, Ray's house. The next door neighbors was the Clopex, was the creepy people. Then you have Walter's house, which is the one who mysteriously goes missing. And then there's a house you don't even know who lives there. We don't even know. We right. never even see these people. And then you have the Rumsfield, who's Bruce Stern and his wife, Bonnie. And then you have Ricky, who's, like you said, home alone, painting, but not painting the house. Who's basically just watching everything. Which was interesting, too, because he kind of likes to observe the street. Right. Meaning that a lot, of, a lot of stuff usually happens all the time, but nothing's happening. So I wish we got a little more into that. Like there was more of a dynamic of the neighbors that that's why he loves to sit on the porch and watch what's going on because it's always a show. But to the audience, the show really didn't start until the Copex moved in. But he makes it seem like something's always weird happening on this street because of the dynamics of the neighbors. But you never get that sense. Agreed. And again, if we had a few more character traits for each of these individual characters, as to, like you were saying or alluding to with Ricky, Corey Feldman's character, as to why they do what they do, then it's more interesting as to then how they interact with one another and how they, you know, work together towards a common cause or against each other for whatever reasons. I mean, it's just because um, you think of like all right, Bruce Stern's character, Mark. So he's ex-military. So he has all these cool gadgets that they use to try to spy on the house. But he's the only one that brings like his outside world into the street, into the neighborhood and tries to use that for the surveillance of the Klopex. It would have been interesting to know what art does, and maybe there's something that art does that would help with the surveillance. Or, oh, I have a friend because I work at such and such store, and he can do this for us. Exactly. They don't bring the outside world into the street. The, the street is their world. Right. Well, I don't know if, that, if that's supposed to be like a sad commentary on neighborhood. I don't know. I think that's part of it. And I think that was done purposefully, the fact that this, they live in a mundane existence that is a routine day in and day out and actually not much really ever happens that, you know, you can look out your window. There is one kind of funny shot where Tom Hanks has gotten up really early because he's on this uh, staycation 
And he kind of has that, he's doing this mouth breathing thing where his mouth is kind of opening. He's just staring out the window, just kind of in a zombie state watching the neighbor. Like that's the most entertaining thing to do. That's the only thing to do is just watch your neighbors, like spying on them, waiting for them to do something weird and quirky and then judge them for that. I don't know. So there is kind of that sad existence a little bit uh, that is part of the story, but still everybody has an inner life that I would think needs to come out. I don't know, just the way you were describing it, it's just kind of like writing 101, right? You got to give these people uh, some kind of character background and or inner conflict or whatnot that comes out in the story that, um, you know, either provides more problems that they have to, and obstacles that they have to overcome so that you become invested in the character and the relationships, right? And that just doesn't happen in this movie. It's right, because that's always, I find the fascination about being in a neighborhood or neighbors is, yeah, they live right across the street and you see them all the time, but you don't know what they do once they go through that door. Right. They only let you know what they're willing to tell you. So I always find it fascinating, like, what are they doing right now? Are they watching the same show that I'm watching? Are they mm-hmm. listening to the radio? Are they playing games? Are they doing puzzles? So you don't know any of that kind of stuff. And here's an opportunity that we're, we're specifically zoomed in on a neighborhood, but we don't get any of that. We get nothing. Everyone's just fascinated by this one house, but I would like to see how their, how their like personal lives are really affected by this besides hearing noise coming from the basement. Right. And then on top of that, once we actually do get to see inside the Clopex house, which doesn't happen until about an hour into the movie, I believe. Yeah, hour in, yeah. We understand that there is Hans, played by Courtney Gaines. He's the young one. We know that there are three of them that live in this house. Correct. Hans is the youngest. We have, it's Uncle Ruben. Yes. He's the uncle. Yes. And then, (laughs) no, yes. Uh, Then we have... Henry Gibson playing Dr. Werner Klopek. And I, is he supposed to be Hans's dad then? And Ruben is his brother? We, yeah, we know Ruben and the doctor are brothers, but we don't really know what Hans's relationship is. Well, well, he must be and, the son because he says he's uncle. Yeah, so maybe it's... Yeah, so I'm thinking... But we don't, but we don't really know. It might not be one of their kids. We, that's the whole point. There could be someone just, else. Yeah. yeah. That's the whole point is we don't know a damn thing about them, which is okay at the start, but we don't learn anything about them at all. No. We don't know anything about the Clopex at all until the very end. Uh, there's just its surface uh, descriptions as to where they've been, where they're going. And it's kind of creepy, but it might be innocent or, or benign. And then it turns out it isn't, et cetera. But uh, there was another point I was going to make. It makes me think of a couple other movies, Bill Band, one being Fright Night, where, uh, and I haven't seen Fright Night in some time, so please help me out a little bit. Whereas you have a neighbor, again, where you're not sure what's going on over there, right? Mm-hmm. But then you get let in into it, and then there's a relationship that develops, and then and then all hell breaks loose. Yeah. And that's kind of fun to watch, but you get led into is who these characters are and it, it becomes more intriguing and they have kind of a, a reasons for doing what they're doing. And then I thought of another movie and your mileage might vary on this, ladies and gentlemen, but in more recent years, there's a movie called The Watch 
which was about a neighborhood watch formed by Ben Stiller. Oh, and, you have, right. and the aliens uh, have like their home base underneath the Costco. And uh, I find the movie somewhat amusing. Jonah Hill's pretty damn funny in it, actually. But again, kind of a there was a there's a whole thing in the neighborhood where there's a uh, Billy Crudup is running like a what is it like some sort of sex ring, like a, not a brothel. But anyway, it's a, like a swingers party at his house. But they think something else is going on over there. And then you find out. Anyway, it's that sort of thing where you just don't know what your neighbors are doing behind closed doors. Then you let are let in and you figure it out and you get to know these people and why they do what they do. But in this, we just don't ever get any reasons for anything. <laughs> yeah, my recommendation would be Disturbia. Oh, yeah. Good call. Great call. Absolutely. Great call. Sure. Shia LaBeouf. Uh, yeah, I was a big fan of that one. Who plays the, the neighbor? I love that actor. David Morse. Yes. Love him. Yeah, you can mix a lot of comps. Yeah, but this one trying to go for the comedy... But yeah, part of me almost thought uh, maybe you should go just straight thriller or horror because yeah. it's too busy trying to explain and force people into watching the house that it doesn't get very comedic. Right. There's some slapstick stuff in here that doesn't quite work. I felt it was a bit over the top and or cheesy. I think Rick Duckerman is a little bit annoying, to be honest. I think. Bruce Dern, I, I know you enjoyed his performance. I think he's more of a caricature of a Vietnam vet. But if you went one way or the other, and maybe he has PTSD and is suffering from paranoia of some kind, and really that plays into why he takes certain actions throughout the movie and attacks or doesn't, it just kind of goes more the comedic route with him. And Again, your mileage may vary. It's as far as what you think is funny or isn't. And some of the jokes don't quite play for me or it's not. It just comes off as silly. Right. Not truly funny, but that's just my opinion. It didn't really make make choices, I guess. Yeah. So it's uh yeah, let's move on. Let's move on to favorite yeah, yeah, yeah. scenes or moments. If we have any, what are some of our favorite scenes and moments from The Burbs? Yeah, absolutely. I alluded to this earlier. I like a good ghost story. So I like when we know that the Klopex have moved in next door. They've been there for about a month, but they do not take care of their house. It looks literally looks like a haunted house. There's no mystery to it at all outside of, of course, who they are and what they're doing inside the house. But outside, it's clearly, okay, these are the creepy neighbors. The lawn is completely dead. It's all dirt. There's a creepy dead tree in the front yard, all this stuff. But we have our neighbors, as mentioned earlier, Art and Ray, and uh, our young neighbor, as it's Ricky Butler, right? Uh, played by Corey Feldman. They're all hanging out on the porch of Art's house, uh, just having a beer, walking the dog. And Art goes into this whole story about, well, you know, the fact that we've got these creepy neighbors, but it's not entirely unusual or not an unusual occurrence in this town way back when, when I was nine or 10 years old, he's saying there was a guy that worked in the, the, as a soda jerk in the, near the mall. And his name was Skip. And it was a decent enough man with a wife and a couple of kids. And he had a house in the neighborhood. And one day the neighbors started complaining of the smell, a foul order, odor that was emanating from the house. And then it he tells the story and they're walking along the sidewalk and it's just kind of you get into it and you're listening to him tell the story. And that's the, the alluring nature of an engaging nature of a great 
ghost story. So I, I just enjoyed this moment when Art's telling the story. And then, of course, he finishes the story by saying, then uh, the police come to the house and they find that his family had been dead in the basement. And it's pretty gross because it was summertime and the heat had caused the uh, decomposition and the odor to arise, etc. And then uh, Ricky is like, yeah, you know, it makes me think actually, speaking of the house next door, I think I've been smelling something too. And it just gets really quiet. And then he just scares the living shit out of Ray. And it's just really, because I love Tom Hanks's reaction. He's just like a kid listening to a ghost story. Basically, he's gotten engrossed into this in the story. And uh, Ricky gives him a good scare. I just love that. It just makes me think of when I was growing up in my little suburb and the there was a plot of land next to me and I would we used to camp out. We just set up the tent, myself, my sister, a couple of neighbors, and we'd sleep in the tent overnight, just right next to our house. We weren't actually camping. It was literally in the piece of land right next to my house. It's in the middle of the night. It's dark. You put the flashlight on and somebody tells a ghost story. And, you know, somebody outside, you like set it up. So somebody is, is like outside, like your dad or some other friend that starts banging on the tent, you know, right, right. at the right time, you know, or starts scratching on the tent, making like animal noises and stuff when you get to the yeah. uh, scary part of the story. And that's always fun. Love it. Love a good, uh, good, uh, scary story. The story didn't do anything for me, to be honest. So that's kind of funny. That was your favorite <laughs> or moment. It didn't do anything for me. I think I would have liked it better if Art had somehow found the story and then was relaying it to say, like, see, this stuff can mm-hmm. happen instead of the way it was presented. Or maybe if that actual story that he tells, I thought maybe that would play into or had some sort of ties to what was going on presently. Yeah, that would have helped. That could have been cool. I was. It just made me a little bit more nostalgia for those times when I was younger and hearing those types of stories. Because there also, again, like there was a house that was in the woods behind my grade school that supposedly some old lady lived there and she would do bad things to the kids that would come across that, come across that house or try to enter the house. And there was a trail that led to it and we would only walk so far. <laughs> and we wouldn't even get to the house. We just get too scared and turn around and go back. But I mean, we're really little. I, and I just appreciate the point where uh, in this particular scene, uh, Ricky scared uh, Ray because Tom Hanks's reaction is hilarious when he screams. No, all good. All good. Can't agree on everything. So a favorite moment for me, I don't know why I found this amusing, was um, so there's one night when they actually are spying on the house and Hans comes out literally drives out of the house out of the little makeshift garage and dumps his trash that was my trash yeah can. yeah oh, okay i put it as my favorite as a favorite scene but it's really too sh- maybe too short but uh keep going yeah this is i put this down too so he pulls this huge bag out of the trunk and then puts it in the trash can and just beats the shit out of it with the stick <laughs> yeah and then finally puts the can on it gets back in the car and literally backs back into the garage and then it starts raining and of course, they want to know what's in the trash, but they don't want to look at that hour because it's raining and they're, they know they're going to be caught. So the next day, the trash, the garbage men are out and they're about to pick up the trash. And of course, they all come running out because they, they, I mean, they're literally jumping into the trash compactor and throwing everything out of the trash to see what they can find in the trash. And they make this huge pile of trash right in front of the Klopex house. 
And I mean, they could see all this going on, which is kind of stupid, but like the garbage bin said, you know, once it hits the street, it's public domain. So if they want to look through it, they can look through it. But just what I found funny is for the whole rest of the movie, this pile of trash is just sitting in front of the house. It never gets picked up, never gets clean, somehow never blows away. Right. But I just thought it was funny that the trash was just there throughout the rest of the film. I just I totally funny. agree. There's some great wide shots or a master shot, you know, from across the street looking at the creepy house and you just see a giant pile of trash still on the street that never gets yeah, cleaned. The Klopex leave the house. They literally drive over the pile of trash. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. just there the whole time. It's the yeah. one blemish in the neighborhood besides the house itself is the pile of trash on the street. I, I, I don't know. Every time I saw it, it just kind of made me chuckle that it was still there. There's some funny stuff in this it's, and it's creepy. It's great it, because it doesn't, it's so confusing because we have Ray and Art and Mark, right? Rumsfeld. Yes. They're, hunkered down behind their trash cans across the street, watching the Klopek house as, yeah, like you said, Hans is coming, pulling out of his garage with the headlights off and driving just down the driveway to drop off the trash, take this giant garbage bag out of his trunk. I just love the fact that Courtney Gaines, he's so funny. When he puts the, the trash into the trash can, he gets so angry because the the trash won't fit in it. He keeps slamming down because he uses a, it's like a rake. Or what, I don't know what you call it, a hoe that he uses to try to jam the garbage bag into the trash can. And he gets so angry. He just goes, oh, oh, like keeps pushing, jamming it, jamming it down. So it really comes off as if he's like this crazed psycho killer already. They're painting that picture for you when he does it. So that cracked me up. And just like you said, I wrote this quote down because this made me laugh out loud while they're watching this happen. Courtney Gaines gets back into his car, reverses back into the garage with the headlights off, and then the garage door closes slowly. And across the way, we have Ray who just says, I've never seen that. I've never seen anybody drive their their garbage down to the street, then bang the hell out of it with a stick. I've never seen that. (laughs) I love that line. I've never seen anybody drive their garbage down to the street, then bang the hell out of it with a stick. I've never seen that. Uh, so good call, Bill. I agree with you. Great, great, funny moments in that. I will go to, I guess, my first favorite scene. This is probably my only favorite scene. I'm going to be honest with you. The rest of my my stuff here are all favorite moments. So this could be your favorite scene as well, or one of them. Now, This is kind of like midway through the film. And we understand that Ray is on vacation from work. He's had stomach issues. You can probably uh, extrapolate the fact that he might be suffering from stress. So Carol has been trying to get him to relax, but now he's all upset about what's happening with these weird neighbors next door. They really don't know what's been going on, except for the fact that Walter, the elderly gentleman who has a dog across the way, has disappeared, and that's not good. And now they're conjuring up all these theories that the Klopex probably killed him (laughs) because he's gone. And there's some very vague evidence to that fact, but they really have no evidence. And we know that Ray has slipped a note under Walter's door because he just disappeared and left his dog behind. And Ray just wants to let him know, I've got your dog. So he leaves a note for him. Now, 
Carol, his wife is worried about him and says, you need to relax. And it's in the middle of the day, Ray's out back, relaxing on a lawn chair and taking a nap. Meanwhile, uh, the genius that is both Art and Mark Rumsfeld, they go to the Klopik's house and slip a note under the door, trying to instigate and antagonize the Klopex a little bit into coming out. They need them to come out of the house and they want to talk to him and they want to know what happened to their other neighbor, Walter. And nothing happens, but Art goes over to Ray's and Ray's just trying to relax and get some sleep and Art wakes him up. And immediately Ray is freaking out. He's upset. He's like, why did you go over there and drop off a note? They saw me drop off a note over at Walter's. They're going to think I was the one that put the note under their door and they're going to accuse me of bothering them. And I don't want my neighbors to be all up in my business. And he gets so frustrated that he picks up these, I guess they're beer cans that were next to him and he crushes them in frustration. And you have to understand, you can't see me, obviously. We understand that Tom Hanks is a wonderful comedian and his physicality in the scene is hilarious, especially when he gets excited and upset and exasperated and he's kind of at his wits end and he's mad at art because art is just taking things too far and in the middle of this we understand that ray's dog has been digging under the fence that borders ray's property and the clopex property and the dog has dug up a large bone and so while art and ray are arguing Ray's dog keeps running up and giving the bone to Art and Art just takes the bone out of the dog's mouth, tosses it. Dog goes and chases the bone and brings it back. And we can see as the the audience that the bone is huge. It's a human bone. And finally, Art takes the bone from the dog, looks at it and goes, this is a femur. This is a human thigh bone. And they're like, oh shit. And they start walking towards the fence and they're like, wait, if this bone was under the fence that was on their property, then that means, and Art starts putting together and he goes, Ray, this is Walter. And they both simultaneously scream, no. And this camera just keeps zooming in and out and in and out while they're screaming, no. And it's a little bit over the top. I always thought that was actually the funniest moment in that movie. And when I saw it, I was like, oh yeah, I remember this because it really is funny. Uh, with that camera zoom in and out on on them as they're screaming no. And then, of course, they turn around after calming down for just a second, and Ray starts to go inside, and he's now he's a bit uh, distraught. Carol's coming out and whacks him right in the face with the screen door. Once again, Ray is really upset and crushes another beer can uh, just out of frustration. Again, just some really good physical comedy from Tom Hanks in the moment. Just a lot of frustration being released by Tom Hanks in this scene. And uh, yeah, so I thought that was a funny scene. That that scene was entertaining to me. Yeah, and there is a funny moment when they're having the conversation and we kind of see Ruben Klopek walking along the side of the house and they're kind of watching him. And then you see a piece of paper just go over the fence. And we right. assume it's the piece of paper that Art and Mark stuck under the door. So it's like, uh-oh. And yeah. just confirming Ray's suspicion that the Klopex thought he wrote the note. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, what else do you got for favorite moments and or scenes? Um, so I'm going to go favorite scene. Probably my only favorite scene in the movie is going to visit the Klopex. Yep. So like I said, we're an hour into the movie when they finally, Carol, Carrie Fisher, Ray's wife, has just had enough of this Klopek talk. And it's just ruining Ray's week. He's supposed to be having a staycation. She wants to go to the lake. And all he's doing is obsessed about this house. So she's like, you know what? We're just going to go over the house, introduce ourselves. You People are going to see that they're nice neighbors and we're just going to move on with our lives. So of course, right away, Art, you're not coming. So stay away. <laughs> so it's Ray Carroll, um, Mark and his wife, Bonnie, played by Wendy Shaw. I think I'm saying that right, hopefully. Yeah, that's how I would have pronounced it. Yeah. So they decide to go over and it starts with them going up on the porch and early in the movie, Ray and Art have been up on that porch because they were daring each other to ring the doorbell to, to finally introduce themselves. And Art goes through the porch and then they go to hit the doorbell. No, they go to knock on the door and all these bees come out. So they got to run off. So they that, that didn't work at all. So they go back to the house again. It's the four of them. Bonnie made some brownies and they knock on the door. <laughs> Mark goes to take a step forward and he goes through the porch. Right. That's a pretty funny moment. Yeah. Spilling the brownies all over the, the floor. And there goes goddamn brownies. Hans opens the door. They're like, hey, you know, we're your neighbors. And basically just work their way in there, which is kind of funny. They don't even give Hans a chance to welcome them. And they just kind of walk in. And yeah, they're pretty aggressive about it. Yeah. Cause I think Kyra really just wants to prove like there's nothing wrong with these people. Right. And then that leads to my favorite scene where they, they're looking through the house. And uh, Mark finds the picture frame and he's talking to Hans. He's like, oh, pretty girl, friend of yours, sister, girlfriend. And he just burst out the, no, it came with the frame. That just cracks me. I kind of love that line. It's really funny. And at that point, we meet Ruben, who's the uncle. And you could tell right away he does not, he's not happy that the four of them are in there. And he's not giving them any information whatsoever. And then Mark says this one line where he tries to talk to Ruben. He's like, Klopek, what is that? Slavic? Yeah. And Ruben just said, no. And Mark comes back. The line made me crack up was, that a nine on the tension scale there, huh, Rube? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's a fun back and forth, that bit there. Yeah. It's just the uncomfortable silence. And then Hans comes out with, I guess, hors d'oeuvres, yep. which yeah. is pretzels and sardines salt on top of salt this is one of my favorite yeah favorite moments oh yeah so of course you know he offers the sardines to the to bonnie and carol and they refuse and then hans goes over to ray and he's like do you want it and carol nods at him like yeah go ahead go ahead take it you see him take a pretzel and he takes a sardine off and he puts it on the pretzel and you're like oh god please don't eat that because it's gross it's like you literally see like sardine residue oh, on his it's fingers so juicy it's gross oh and then he sticks the whole thing in his mouth and just the whole just hear thing the, yeah you just hear the crunch crunch and you crunch. hear that that juicy oh it's like oh no Ugh. and then at that point we finally get to meet dr klopek and you know he goes to shake Ray's hand and of course hand looks like it's all blood no it's not blood it's really paint and he does some paintings and mm -hmm. then you know they finally decide to leave the house and that's when Ray discovers Walter's toupee in the house and then of course that leads to the thinking that they really did kill Walter 
mm-hmm. and they're going to move on to the next step. But yeah, there's just some funny moments in the house that I just always like. So visiting the Klopex house was probably my favorite scene in the whole movie. There's some great bits in that scene. I absolutely love when Hanks eats the sardine on the pretzel, shoving the whole thing in his mouth. And then I love this moment because of Bonnie's reaction. Is it Wendy Shaw that plays Bonnie? She's great in this moment because I think what happens is she all, she starts to gag as he's eating it. And this is all on her, her reaction. And then Carrie Fisher says something, but Bonnie, she almost breaks. It looks like she's about to laugh because she's watching Tom Hanks. You can tell she's about to laugh. It's a great, but it works so well in that scene. So it's not even so much Tom Hanks eating the sardine on the salty pretzel. That's funny, but it's Bonnie's reaction. So I love that. And then immediately after that, because everything is so awkward in the scene, when Tom Hanks has a sneezing fit. Oh, yeah. He does, he does this weird sneezing thing. And he finally just obnoxiously like grabs a piece of newspaper and blows his nose and sneezes into it. And he's like packing dust. Newspaper that looks like it's like 10 years old. Yeah, yeah. Which probably doesn't help. No. Matters regarding dust and allergies, but uh, that's a funny, funny scene. So, speaking of the comic genius that is Tom Hanks, another favorite moment of mine is toward the very end. And spoiler alert: this is uh, after the Klopex house has been blown up because Ray and Art went into the basement. They broken into the house after the Klopex have left. And they've gone into the basement and they discover what is a crematorium of sorts. It's a giant furnace that can burn up to 5,000 degrees. That's powered by all these batteries. And Ray feels like, okay, well, this is the mother load and this is where the bodies must be buried. He starts digging and unfortunately busts open a gas line, which releases all this gas in the house. Then the house explodes. Well, Art gets out in time, but Ray doesn't quite get out of time. And this is just absolutely, I watched this twice, Bill, and it made me laugh out loud both times. When Tom Hanks comes out, his clothes are in tatters. He's all charred. His hair is a mess. One of his eyes is completely swollen shut. His like right hand looks like it's like bent. The fingers are bent the wrong way. And he's like shuffling across the porch. Like he's like moving really awkwardly and he's like hunched backwards it's just like his posture is absolutely amazing and he gets to the the stairs leading off of the porch and he does this slide down where he doesn't trip but he kind of like shimmies down the stairs and he's just has this stare on his face uh which is priceless i i just love how he slips down down the stairs and he just is an absolute wreck so i love that moment and then another tom hanks ray moment when he is now bandaged up somewhat and he's got gauze wrapped around his head and he's all pissed off at art of course because they didn't find jack shit nothing against the clopex and now the house is blown up and it's all their fault and he's blaming art and he's screaming at him he's like this is actually kind of, I actually enjoyed this commentary because this is where it kind of rang true as to, well, if there was more buildup, this this really is the point is that they're the crazy ones. It's not the Klopex, it's them that have been 
going insane, building up all these theories in their heads as to these the Klopeks being murderers when they never really had anything to begin with, but they just have nothing better to do than come up with these stupid theories and he gets all upset. And he's in his frustration, he is about to get in the ambulance, but he just takes the gurney and lifts it up and throws it into the back of the ambulance, climbs into the ambulance, jumps onto the gurney face down like a little kid and is just like, take me away. And it is great because then Carrie Fisher just walks up and says, you okay? He's like, yeah, I'm fine, Carol. <laughs> His delivery of that line is great. I just love when... Tom Hanks is exasperated and just does his flailing about and actually takes the gurney, picks up the gurney, throws it into the back of the ambulance, then gets in and jumps on top of the gurney. Very funny moment. I had that down too, because he has a funny line where he says, I've been blown up, take me to the hospital. (laughs) And then he initially lies on the gurney in the street. And he gets up right away because he doesn't want to wait for someone to put him into the ambulance. And he picks it up and he throws it in there and then just yeah. dives on it. That's the best. And it's he's the best. Just like, take me to the hospital. I'm sick. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, with that speech, too, I was thinking the same thing. I was like, oh, that's a good speech. Unfortunately, it doesn't work for the movie because we don't get enough from the neighbors for that to ring as true as it should. Right. And that, yeah, I was kind of disappointed. Like, yeah, there wasn't enough development leading up to that moment. Yeah, there just wasn't. But when it happens, you're like, oh, yeah, that's what this movie is about. But it doesn't ring true. No, because it's not fleshed out. All right. So I got one moment left and then we can move on. Absolutely. After they leave the Copex and decide and the Copex let them know that they're leaving the next day on business. So the house is going to be empty. And they decide we're going to break into the house and Art tries to cut the power, which he does, but of course electrocutes himself in the process. So they start digging holes in the backyard to see if they can find the bodies and they're unsuccessful. So like, all right, let's get into the house, go into the basement, see what we can find. Mm-hmm. So it's the scene they go up to the door. Yeah, this is funny. <laughs> I almost put this down too. <laughs> and Ray says to Art, hey, give me a credit card, thinking that, oh, I guess he knows how to pick a lock. And Ray goes to pull out his wallet, but because he got electrocuted, all his credit cards have all melted and fused together. So he can't use anything. So Ray pulls one out of his wallet and Art's like, oh, you know how to do that? And of course, right away, you know, it's not going to work because the way the door sits, can't reach the lock. Yeah. And... Ray's trying to jimmy the door open, but all of a sudden he ends up snapping the credit card. It just snaps in half. He's like, I don't know how to do this. He's like, I don't know how to do this. And then Art just follows up with, ah, that's a shit store anyway. And that was just a great line. It's like, yeah, the credit card, card, that card. Yeah. yeah. So that, that was a funny moment. Few and far between, but that one did make me laugh. Uh, see, there, there's some fun in this movie for sure. Uh, before we move on to our next segment, I'm going to sneak in a real quick comment here because Sometimes we talk about the music. Sometimes it's not necessarily necessary. So I'm going to give a quick shout out to Jerry Goldsmith, who did the score for this because of the fact that I love Jerry Goldsmith. And this score for me is not memorable at all. That's what I was going to say. I saw his name and then didn't remember anything. I couldn't about believe it. it. I was like, oh, my God, Jerry Goldsmith, one of my heroes as far as film composers and a lot of the scores repetitive, a lot of the same music cues, especially for Bruce Dern's character, kind of that army thing. Funny enough, there's a music cue in there 
that is a direct homage or has a correlation to uh, the film Patton, the George C. Scott film, mm-hmm. which Jerry Goldsmith did the score for. So there's a connection there. But outside of it, I was like, oh, man, this is not uh, probably on Jerry Goldsmith's greatest hits. No, it's probably not. But hey, still love the guy. I mean, yeah, because I said, if you want to listen to a Jerry Goldsmith score that deals with suburbia, that you go listen to Poltergeist, not this one. There you go. Hey, let's take a quick break and hear from our friends over at the Retro Movie Roundtable podcast. Hey, do you enjoy movies? If so, you're going to want to check out the Retro Movie Roundtable, the podcast where we watch movies and then talk about them. We're inviting you to join us as we dive into beloved movies from 10 years ago and beyond. We cover every genre and every era. The show is fun and personal, but also insightful and informative. The Retro Movie Roundtable is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Please check them out over at the Retro Movie Roundtable podcast. Hello, this is Jason, co-host of the All 80s Movies podcast, with a message from Factor Meals. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you will always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Now back to our show. All right, so let's uh, move on to our next segment, which is Swiss cheese and the complaints department. And why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have holes. Yes, and if it doesn't fall under Swiss cheese, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. All right, so I'm sure we got a little bit of Swiss cheese and complaints. So do you want to go first on this? Uh, why don't you take the lead? I think you got some Swiss cheese, right? Okay, so my first Swiss cheese is, okay, so the four of them go to the Clopex and they introduce themselves and they bring up the fact about Walter. And we find out later on that supposedly the Clopex have been collecting Walter's mail. Right. Why didn't they mention it there at that moment? I, that's a great question. Fixed everything right there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're, yeah, we've been collecting Walter's mail. He's in the hospital. Boom. Yeah, would have solved that. And then had something else happen to cause suspicion again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But the, yeah, they bring him up in the house. And they don't say, oh, yeah, he's in the hospital. By the way, yeah, Walter had to be rushed to the hospital. So we've been watching the house and collecting his mail. Yep. And his toupee. Yes, and his toupee. What about, uh, do you have any other uh, Swiss cheese? Because I'm, I'm going all, all in on some complaints. All right. So when they finally decide to break in the house, the Klopeks have left. And Art and Ray decide to go in the house, dig some holes. So Mark is now stationed on top of his roof, and he has a wonderful view of the street. He, he can see everything. Oh, I have a feeling house. I have the same complaint. Yeah. And then at one point, the Klopeks are coming home. Yep. How do you not see that? 
it's Even one if, street that goes into a cul-de-sac in a tiny, tiny town. There's no way in hell you don't see that car. How did he miss it? Let alone hear the car. Oh, yeah. Hear it, see it. Because he sees a car, the car coming after that. Yeah. To drop off Walter. Right. Even if they did the same thing with the walkie-talkie the first time, where maybe he's calling on the radio and they don't hear, and then he yeah. goes in the house or something, and then they come back with the cops. That still would have worked. Or oh, he yeah, fall, just or he falls off the roof and then that way he can't get to the house. There's a numerous ways to solve that problem to distract him from seeing the Klopex come down the street in their vehicle, but they don't. And it's just like there's no way he didn't see them. I don't understand what happened here. Yeah. Especially if, if like he's supposed to be this Vietnam vet with and he's got the gadgetry, right? He's got the oh, yeah. like, infrared scope and all this stuff and there's no way he doesn't see. He's right next to the street. It's just, it's it's totally obvious. Good call. Yeah, I'd read that down too. Mm-hmm. You know what? I love this moment at the very beginning of the film when Ray comes out of his house in the middle of the night in his robe to sort of investigate this noise that's coming from the basement of the Clopex. So we see Ray's feet as he's basically crossing over the property line, the border between his property and the Clopex. And he steps from the green grass of his lawn onto the Clopex lawn, which is all dirt. And all of a sudden, the wind kicks up. There's a gust that blows. And then he steps back onto his lawn and the wind dies down. It's gone. To give off this supernatural feel. But there's nothing supernatural about this movie. No. I know that would have been a lot better. If they played that up more. Right. That was kind of cool. Like I said, I loved it when it happened. And then I was like later on, wait, so why did that happen in the beginning? Because it almost happens again a little bit when Art and Ray go, when they're teasing each other to ring the doorbell. And right. when they first step on there, it the wind picks up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Never, it doesn't happen again. And I understand if it's just for effect. This is, again, where you were alluding to this earlier, Bill, as to not making choices. you got to go all the way or don't go at all or choose one way to go and stick with that. And I understand if it's just for effect, like, ooh, ah, this is creepy, and it's supposed to be over-the-top comedic, right? then that works. But it doesn't quite go all the way where it ends up being a little more confusing than funny yes because then i'm just like oh that was a cool thing so is there a supernatural element involved here and there just isn't so that then that wind effect in the beginning makes no sense at all yeah especially when you're establishing it that early in the film yeah and then almost touch on it again and then it just completely disappears yeah i I don't know so that was i had a little issue there i just thought this was funny with uh, Mark's character when he steps in the dog poop because Walter's dog likes to go into his yard and poop and he steps in and gets all frustrated that he actually tippy toes across the street getting all he's all upset at Walter saying hey your dog basically crapped on my lawn again instead of just wiping his boot off like in the grass then and there or on the street he's kind of walking with his heel elevated because it's got the dog poop on it yeah, I just, just thought that it was just a nitpicky. It's totally nitpicky, but I'm like, who does that? 
if you step in dog shit, you immediately want to get it off your shoe one way or another. You uh, scuff your shoe on the gravel of the street or you rub it on the grass to get the dog crap off the bottom of your shoe. You don't kind of tippy toe around unless you're looking for a, a hose to hose it off with some water or something. I don't know. I just thought that was funny. Because it's established as a recurring event. Mm-hmm. Maybe you tiptoe across the street and then just wipe it right on his front. Pad. Okay. That would work. Yeah. But he right. didn't do it though. So like he's saving. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's, that would have been funny. That would have been funny. Yeah. Here's your dog shit. I mentioned this earlier. I was just, this was a problem for me. I just didn't know what the hell was wrong with Ray in the first place that he needed a vacation. Cause it was just, we get a little sense that he has a stomach thing. So was it stress was another. And like you said, in the trivia, we find out that, there was a version of this in the script where he had been fired. I just had a problem like the whole time. Like, why is he on vacation? What's what's up with the Ray? What's his issue? What's his deal? What's going on inside him? What's happening? Yeah. What's driving him crazy? Because then that could lead to why he is the way he is and why he's either paranoid, stressed out, freaked out about everything that's going on in his life and around him in this neighborhood and little things start getting at him. And he's just on edge and there's no reasons we just, or we're not let in to what's going on. Yeah. For some reason you're talking about that, the a movie that popped in my head was, and we'll probably discuss this on the show at some point, summer rental with John Candy, where in the beginning he's an air traffic controller. The job has gotten to him. So he's going to take this month long vacation. And the whole point of the vacation is just try to stay as calm as possible and relax and get back to his job. And just everything that can go wrong will go wrong. And I think that would have helped on this too, if, you know, maybe he was put on leave just because of stress. So what he has to do is just stay home, relax, don't let anything get to you. And of course the opposite is happening, right? We don't get that. He's just absolutely. So just kind of to stay on this point for a moment, this was in the, the research. I took this from Wikipedia and this is Tom Hanks talking about the role. And this is exactly what I'm talking about. So just as an actor, this is kind of the, the work he he does on his character. So he says that he was also intrigued by his character's distinctive personality traits, that being Ray Peterson. Sometimes there's more of an opportunity to create than others. Here's a guy with a great life, a nice house, a wife, a beautiful tree, a nice neighborhood, and he's happy. Next day, he hates it all. I thought something must have happened to him off stage, And that's the challenge for me of the part, to communicate Ray's off-screen dilemma. One of the reasons Ray doesn't go away on vacation is because it's another extension of the normalcy he's fallen into. So he thinks he'll try a more bohemian thing, which is just to hang around the house. With a week's worth of free time on his hands, Ray is drawn into the preoccupations of his neighbors who always seem to be at home. But what I did is just backstory embellishment that any actor will do, perhaps from my repertory experience. He's talking about that. And that's what we're looking for. We want to see some of that on screen, some of that, because that's a lot of the inner life that he's given the character. And that's what you do, as he said, that that's what any actor would do. But some of that has to come out in the writing or that has to be developed so that it translates onto screen. And that just didn't come across. And that's that's a complaint. That's a major complaint I have. How many times have they mentioned the grill, that he's going to fix the grill in the, in the movie? Show a scene of him working on it when Art comes and, and starts yelling at him about, look what I found, you know, or we did this. Add it in yeah. there. Add what he's 
what his plan was to actually do that week somehow tied into the film and they don't. Right. This return to normalcy kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah. So uh, what else do you have? Okay. We find out that Walter had a heart issue. His um, was a daughter and son-in-law come over to, to take him to the hospital. There's two houses next to me, the Klopex and the mystery house that we don't really see. Mm-hmm. Are you really going to the Klopex to ask him to pick up Walter's mail? No way. No, I'm going somewhere else before I ask them to go pick up my mail or check on them and let them know what's going on. Yeah, because who knows what's going to happen when you knock on their door to ask them to take your mail when bees are going to fly out of a hole in the wall and that's not good. Uh, yeah, you just wouldn't do it. And then they find Queenie the next day out in the neighborhood. You would think they would come back to check on the dog? Well, that, I, I thought about that earlier when you were talking about the scene uh, or talking about the issue you had, the hole being that why wouldn't the Klopex just mention, hey, we've been taking in the mail for Walter. Then why aren't they looking after the dog as well? Yeah. Or even if the, maybe the dog ran out of the house when they were trying to take Walter to the hospital. After I find out, you know, Walter's okay, I'll go back to see if I can find the dog. Yeah. It just seemed bizarre to me. No, I agree. The issue with the dog, that's a hole. Because obviously Walter is so attached to that dog, even if it was an emergency and the dog ran out of the house, one of his main things, his family comes over to take him to the hospital. First thing out of his mouth is, where's Queenie? Where's Queenie? Yeah. Take care of Queenie. Yeah. So late in the film, when Ray and Art are in the Klopex basement, they discover the crematorium furnace that heats up to 5,000 degrees. Ray starts digging to look for Walter's body. If it's a crematorium, how are they not? Everything is ash. Everything would be turned to ash, right? Yes. That's the process of cremation. Why are you looking for bones in a body next to a furnace? That's true. It's a crematorium. That's the whole point is that you, that's one of the, I should have put this in the holes from my perspective, at least, was that if that's what he's doing down there is burning bodies, then that's the whole point is there will be no evidence. Correct. So they should have opened it at some point. How do you not open it? Oh, and, and oh, and look into the furnace. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been interesting if he had, because that's what uh, Werner Klopek accuses him of. Right. That gets at into the one very... of the complaints. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Why are you looking for a body next to a fur- that it's a crematorium? There would be no evidence that. Right. Uh, that was just... confusing to me. All you would find is ash. They just shovel it no, out. Just be a pile ground. of ash. Yeah. If that. Yeah. Yeah. So my next complaint before I get to the Walter complaint, I'm trying to keep in order. All right. So it's established that the Klopex have been living in that house for a month, right? Right. So what the hell was the condition of the house before they moved in? I could see the lawn being shitty, but I mean, literally the paint is peeling off the house. Boards are falling. Yeah. It's like gray gardens, basically. So the people who lived there before did not keep that house up any better, right? Right. So it's been a shitty house for a while. And then we find out that the Naps were murdered. Right. No one ever came to look for the Naps? Yeah. There are a lot of questions here. Yeah, we don't know anything. Yeah, we don't know anything about the Naps. They just disappeared in the night. But we know they're kind of recluses also because they mentioned, oh, it's the first time we've been in the house. Right, right. But you would think, too... There is, a, there is a line, there's a mention of never seeing a moving van. Yes. I didn't know if that was in reference to the Naps or the Klopex, but... Well, they had to move that furnace in there somehow. Yeah. So it had to be something. Everything some is point. very, yeah, under the cover of darkness, I guess. I don't know. Not a lot of questions there. Yeah, poor Naps. 
Yeah. Right. But that led to another question I had. Go ahead. Thinking of, again, the crematorium, right? So do we ever know or need to know what the digging was all about then? Because I assume, I guess that's where they were going to put all the bones that they had in the trunk of their car. I don't know what was all the digging about. Because we see in the middle of the night that Hans, Uncle Ruben, and Werner are digging, right? In the rain. Mm-hmm. And then later on, Art and Ray go over there and start digging, but they don't find anything where the others had been digging. Okay. I think and I got supposedly it. Cr- covered it up and then they were digging. There, there's nothing there. So what are they digging? Okay. This is just a guess. It's my hypothesis. All right. So if they took over the house, so they originally had to kill the naps, right? Correct. So they had to bury the, the naps. Man. The whole thing was supposedly the naps weren't going to sell to them. Correct. Okay. So you had to put the body somewhere. So they buried him in the backyard. They didn't have the furnace yet. Okay. So they probably built the furnace, have been testing it out, and then dug up the naps and finally decided to burn them in the crematorium. Gotcha. That would be my guess. And I didn't think about that until you started asking the question, but I was like, oh, that might make okay, sense. Okay, that could work. The, yeah, it was just like the digging then all of a sudden kind of came. Did, I was like, that's not really answered in the movie as to what. Now that they have that furnace, they don't need to bury They're anything. Bodies. Just right. throw it in the, throw it yeah, in the just, furnace. Yeah, you just spread the ash throughout the backyard. Yeah, exactly. But then at the very end, we have the car pull up and the trunk is filled with skeletons and bones. So they must have been picking that up from somewhere else then. I'm guessing. Yeah. And that must have been their. I, yeah, go ahead. That was their MO. Right. That, that's their method of operation, that modus operandi, because they do talk about it. Werner talks about how they've moved four times in four years. Is that correct? So I think yeah. four times in four. Yeah. Four times in four years. My thought is that they are basically serial killers and they've been killing people all along the way. And they've have now this collection of skulls and bones in their trunk that they need to dispose of. They may have picked it up from another area and they're now transporting it back home. I don't know. There's a lot of questions here, a lot, a lot right. of like unanswered questions. Yeah, I want to apologize about this, too, because when they when Art accuses of the doctor of not actually being a doctor and then the police officer's like, oh, no, he is. He's a well-respected. And then I can't remember what what kind of doctor he was. Oh, yeah. And I forgot to look up what that was. But that would have been oh, yeah. good if that somehow went into play too well see there's a lot of holes here yeah. speaking of swiss cheese there's a ton of holes in this i just there were too many for me to actually pinpoint but now we are so that's one of it. it's like there is no character development we have no everything's on the surface it's alluded to but it's like okay that could have been cool if we knew some background on these people yeah because what kind of doctor he was maybe that's what maybe he was a doctor that was killing patients Man, I, I listen to way too much true <laughs> Or, I mean, use your imagination here. Yeah. This family of the Klopex obviously have a lot of dark secrets and they've been killing multiple, they have multiple, multiple victims. So they have a history, but we know nothing of it or why they do what they do. And again, a director and a writer may say, well, that's the point is you don't know. You don't need to know. It's not about them. It's about the neighbors it's about the local suburbanites and their mundane existence and how they've gone nuts over this thing but then if that were really the case would it be more impactful if the clopex weren't murderers at all that it was the suburbanites the locals that have been there before the clopex that had just gone insane 
by their own conspiracy theories, you know, that had driven them to insanity and them to do something truly violent. Would that be more interesting? Or the Klopex actually looked normal in a normal house, but just kind of weird, just little things are off. Not such obvious things are off. Right. And they're trying to figure this out. Which, again, to me, it makes me think of Fright Night because uh, uh, from an exterior perspective, it doesn't look like much is going on. It's just slightly weird things here and there. Yeah. It's not until you get inside the house and then you uncover certain secrets and things like that. Yeah. So I agree with you. Like there has to be some subtleties, but that was my issue from the get is that this house just looks like a haunted house from the beginning. Mm -hmm. There's no subtlety at all. So, okay, we're going over the top then. Is that what we're doing? Is that the choice we're making? This is going to be a comedy. It's clearly like something wrong is happening here. We just got to figure out what it is. Right. But they made the choice and didn't commit to it. And that's yeah, what it's makes just, it not work. Yeah. Anyway. All right. So this is my last complaint. Dr. Warner Klopek at the end gets into the ambulance with Ray and then basically confesses to him and then tries to kill him. Just fucking kill him. Ray apologizes to him like, oh, I'll help rebuild your house. I have tools. Yeah. <laughs> I looked at that. And then Werner could have just been like, hey, it's OK. Here, let me give you a, this sedative that'll calm you down and uh, the ambulance drivers will take you off. They could have just killed him right there. Boom. Done. No. Oh, you looked in the furnace. You saw the bodies. I'm a killer. I'm telling you everything. Yeah. And then I'm an old man. Then you're trying to stick a needle in him. You know, Tom Hanks is still stronger than you. He could stop you. It's very weird. It's very weird. But even the fact that all that motion that Hanks makes, like trying to get the ambulance to turn because Hans has now trying. He would have got stuck. Oh, completely. He was dead. Oh, absolutely. Werner would have. Stuck him with the needle. There's no way he can fight off Werner Koplek, uh, Klopek with the syringe and try to stop the ambulance. Manhandle Hans. Hans as he's driving to just you know get him to swerve off the road. It was that was completely unbelievable. Yeah, it's it was a like weird ending. It feels yeah. it's very haphazard. The whole thing is very haphazard because Klopek's like doing the supervillain thing where he tells his plot. Yeah, he's I'm like monologuing. I'm like, yeah. yeah, I'm like, you're not a supervillain. <laughs> you're not talking to James Bond right now. Right, doesn't work. I was just like, just stick him. Just say, man, it's all right. I understand. Let me uh, help you go to sleep. (laughs) Done. Credits roll. Uh, Well, that was it for me for complaints. So let's move on to our, hey, it's that actor. All right. But this time it's, hey, it's that actor from another Joe Dante movie. Yeah. It seems as though just about every actor in this movie was in another Joe Dante film. So we're just going to list off the actor's. And that were in other Joe Dante movies. Um, some of them were in multiple films of Joe Dante, but I'm just going to list one or else we're going to be here forever. Okay, so we ready? So Bruce Dern, who played Mark Rumsfeld, was the voice of Link Static in Small Soldiers, directed by Joe Dante. Excellent. Corey Feldman, who was Ricky Butler, was Pete in Gremlins, directed yep. by Joe Dante. Wendy Shaw, who played Bonnie Rumsfeld, was Wendy... In Inner Space, directed by Joe Dante. Henry Gibson, who played Dr. Warner Klopek, was the employee fired for smoking in Gremlins 2, The New Batch, directed by Joe Dante. Dick Miller, who was one of the garbage men, was Walter Paisley in The Howling, directed by Joe Dante. Cool. Robert Picardo, who was the other garbage man, was Starkiller in Explorers. Also the cowboy in Inner Space. Yes, yeah. 
I already since I already used the inner space, I was I was like, oh, oh yeah, I just yeah. that's how I think of him. Yeah, I I had that down originally, but then when I saw you in Explorers, I of course one. I think of Star Trek Voyagers. Uh, Rance Howard, who was the detective, was the husband in Small Soldiers, directed by Joe Dante, and last but not least, Nikki Klatt, who was Steve Kuntz, one of Ricky Butler's friends, was a school child in Gremlins. So that's all your hey, it's that actor who was also in another Joe Dante film. All right. So moving on, that takes us to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia we have about the burbs? I love this one. Walter's toy poodle, Queenie, played the same dog that played Precious in The Silence of the Lambs. I have that one, too. I love that one. Yes. Uh, Puts lotion in the basket. Who gets the hose? Silence of the Lambs. That freaking dog. I love that when... uh, doesn't Jodie Foster get really pissed? Like at that point when she comes into that lair at the end, and the dog's barking. Mm-hmm. Doesn't she scream at some point? Shut that dog up! You tell Queenie, shut up, precious. So we were talking about one of our favorite moments at the end. Tom Hanks throwing himself into the ambulance. Well, it was improvised. Tom Hanks improvised the scene where he picks up the gurney and puts himself into the ambulance. Yeah, a lot of this film supposedly was because of the writer's strike and they couldn't do rewrites. So Joe Dante did definitely ask them to improvise as much as possible. Probably should have worked on that a little more. Yep. Anyway, so um, we have mentioned that the uh, movie was shot on the uh, Universal Backlot and the house that Ricky lived in was actually 1313 Mockingbird Lane, the house used for the Munsters, but it was so distinctive. So anytime they shot the house, they had to use extreme close-ups so people wouldn't. That's the Munster's house. Yeah, of course. Got to cheat it. Yep. Uh, supposedly Tom Hanks and Rick Dukeman really didn't get along during filming, according to Joe Dante. But Hanks was a professional and kept it loose. I can see that. So this is interesting to me because of what we were talking about, how almost that the I'm not sure why Tom Hanks had a son in this movie, because the son doesn't really have an instrumental role in this movie, didn't play into any of the character relationship development. Anyway, this is interesting because after Tom Hanks accepted the role in the film, he was very adamant that he shouldn't have a son in the film and fought to have Corey Danzinger, who plays his son, David, that part written out completely, according to director Joe Dante. Hanks felt that he shouldn't have been playing a Fred McMurray type, but more a more contemporary husband to Carrie Fisher. Funny, too, because I thought the same thing. The kid isn't used it at all. And then when I was looking at IMDb, the kid was actually nominated for a Young Actors Award for that movie. He's in it for five minutes. He has one line that really pertains to the story. He's fine in the movie. He's a good child actor. There's nothing wrong with him. It's it's just that his role is not much. no, No need for him whatsoever. Yeah. Speaking of performances... Tom Hanks was very confused about Wendy Shaw's performance as Bonnie in the film, according to her. She also stated that in the note he'd wrote to her when he gave her a gift of sunglasses, I guess at the, you know, after wrapping, he gave every, all the cast sunglasses. He wrote to her, I still don't get what you were doing. It was great working with you. Can you hear it? <laughs> I saw that and then I was watching the movie. I'm like, what was she doing so strange? She was just a superficial, she was just another superficial character, like a trophy wife. Yeah. A little slightly ditzy, I guess. Mm -hmm. I don't even know, but she was fine. Yeah. But she just, her character didn't have a lot of depth, just like all of the other characters. in the Right, exactly. So, I don't know. It's like, kudos to you, Mark. Oh, yeah. 
no tan lines. No, not at all. So the movie, which normally does not happen when we're shooting a film, was actually shot in sequence. And that was uh, partly due to the writer's strike. That way, when they were shooting the movie, if they saw any issues, they would be able to fix it there on the spot. But yeah, since you're all on one street anyway, that would make sense. Yeah, yeah. Be easy to do. Speaking of the street, at the very beginning of the movie, when the camera starts to pan down the street, a street sign appears, Mayfield Place. Mayfield was the town where the Cleavers lived in Leave it to Beaver, 1957. The movie was filmed on the same lot. Wow, it's of stuff filmed here. Well, I thought that was weird, too, because they show the street sign, but it's not facing the street. So they're technically not on Mayfield. Yeah. And then when I had mentioned Art telling that story about Skip, that kind of ghost story in a way, or true crime story, I should say. He mentions, I think it's it's Hinkley Hills. And I was like, oh, is that the name of the town? And is it Mayfield Place is the name of the street? I guess that's right. Yeah, Mayfield Place is supposed to be the street sign. But you're right. It's facing in a dip. The street sign's facing in a weird direction. So I don't know what street they're really on. I don't know. Looks weird. Yeah, so this is my, my last fact. So yeah. I didn't hear this, but this is what it says in the facts. So during filming on the set, there was a voice in the distance that was yelling, help. Oh, yeah. This was because this set was close to the Jaws ride at Universal Studios. And this voice was played loudly on the PA system in the distance. So according to director Joe Dante, you could literally hear it during some scenes in the movie. But yeah, I was, I was listening for the help. I, I couldn't hear it. No, I couldn't either. Uh, here's one little bit more. Corey Feldman had been going through some personal turmoil during the filming and eventually stated that he'd crashed and burned. He had struggled to hang on to what was driving him as an actor. Director Joe Dante and both Wendy Shaw and Carrie Fisher acted as his counselors during the filming to help him from getting into trouble. Makes sense. Carrie Fisher's had had her demons. Yeah, yeah. Good that they were there to help him out. Yeah, we know that, uh, yeah, he was going through some stuff. So, yeah, I think, yeah, that's all I got for trivia. Yeah, we did mention earlier that Dan Olsen, who was the writer, was hired as an actor on the film. Right, right. Played the cop, FYI. Okay. No, it was. Okay, so let's move on to box office. So, The Burbs was released on February 17th, 1989. On an estimated budget of $18 million, it grossed $35.4 million domestically. It debuted number one at the box office and stayed in the number one spot for an additional week. The movie, however, did not have legs because it dropped out of the top 10 by its fifth week. It was the 34th highest grossing movie of 1989, which was two spots lower at the domestic box office than Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which had been released on the same day as The Burbs. Huh. Bill and Ted was number three the same week that uh, the Burbs debuted at number one, but it ended up making more money. There you go. So moving on to reviews, when growing up in the late 80s, we would watch Cisco and Ebert with Gene Cisco and Roger Ebert to hear their reviews and watch clips from upcoming movies. Their review of the Burbs was unanimous. Two thumbs down. Two big thumbs down. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, Gene was not amused by the burbs and couldn't believe Tom Hanks would allow himself to suffer through this story, which was not original at all. Roger called the movie bankrupt of imagination, and the only reason it would be a hit is because of Tom Hanks's star power. Ouch. Oof. Big oof. So that takes us to additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions we have about the burbs? 
Well, I had an additional thought that I drive for DoorDash every day, pretty much. And on my delivery adventures, I always wonder who lives in this house? (laughs) It's amazing, man. Every single day I am coming across houses, not quite like the house in this film, not the Clopex, but it's a real thing. You get a lot of shut-ins. And especially Bill Bant, because of the pandemic last couple of years, a lot of people have just stayed at home. They haven't ventured out much. And uh, things fall by the wayside, like lawn maintenance. And Mm -hmm. you see there's, but I have definitely delivered to some homes where there's some like overgrown foliage and I'm kind of ducking a couple leaves here and there, branches and kind of finding my way to the doorstep, especially in the middle of the night. That's fun. When it's completely dark, all the shades are drawn and you know, somebody's in there. They order the food, right? It's, it gets a little, little creepy. So I just wanted to mention that it's a, it's a real thing every single day. The DoorDash dude. And you'll see it in two, to be honest, in the middle of perfectly fine neighborhood. And these homes are surrounded by perfectly well-kept manicured lawns and homes and and just well-taken care of property. And then there's just that one house that's just like, oh, these people, they got something going up. They have other priorities. Mm -hmm. And who knows? But your mind starts wandering, you know, wandering and wondering. So that's how that goes. Uh, I try not to think about it too much, and I don't stick around for very long. Your delivery is outside. Have a nice day. (laughs) Bye. I think this movie could have been so much more. It could have used a Bill Bant makeover. Let's make a bad movie better. We kind of talked about some possibilities, but the bottom line is give these characters a little bit more background and it needs to be fleshed out. You got to make a choice one way or another. Is it a comedy? If you're going black comedy, just go full bore and get real dark, but we need to enhance these relationships and give these characters a little bit more inner life. And if you're going to make an actual real social commentary, then we have to see elements of, of that commentary throughout, not just come blasting out at the very end. And I don't want to rip this movie to shreds. It's just, again, everything's, on, okay. you know, it's just, yeah, I just think it could have been something, it could be something more. Let's give these characters not just, he's a Vietnam vet. He's an everyman that got fired from his job. He's a kid that likes rock and roll and has to paint his house while his parents are away. Okay. What else? What makes them who they are? And how are they connected? And what do they know about each other? And why do they come together? And what does this experience teach them? Is there learning? Is is it a learning experience at all? What's the arc? There's, where's the arc here? But if that's in place, I think this you could make something in this movie. Like I, I would, you know, probably might change the title. I don't know. Whatever it is, it could be remade. I could see this being remade. You can't make it a comedy because the three people are killing people. What's funny about that? It's just not. Right. This could go. Yeah, you could make this a very uh, much a satirical dark. Yeah, it would be. Or yeah, I guess you don't want it to. If you don't make it a comedy. Or it has to be an outright black comedy, which it yeah, doesn't like, yeah. commit to either. That's why I haven't right. said yeah, in yeah. the beginning. It's a it's a Tom Hanks movie that does not need Tom Hanks in it. So there were there was a few thoughts. I've I've got a few questions. Did you have a, a thoughts that you wanted to share? 
I miss saying because I don't do pizza delivery anymore because I always go pick it up because our apartment complex is is just so crazy that drivers can never find their way through. Right. I just, just love saying the pizza dude is here. And when Corey Feldman kept saying that pizza dude, I was like, oh, my God, I used to remember saying that all the time. Yeah. When I lived in Florida. I'm like, oh, the pizza dude is here. And I was like, oh, my God, I haven't said that in about 14 years. Oh, miss the pizza dude. Good stuff. All right. Yeah. With your questions. I, I know that wasn't like super relevant to the movie. Oh, yeah. No, no. I love it. And then funny enough, at the end, I thought for sure when Ricky had that piece of pizza in his hand, he was just going to th- toss it into somebody's lawn. But he doesn't. I was like, good for you, Ricky. Yeah. Thanks, Ricky. Don't be a litter bug. Don't be a litter bug. That's right, man. I d- you know who has a real issue with littering? My dad. Do not oh, yeah. litter around with Yeah, my dad. Okay. I'll never forget walking on the white sandy beach of Sarasota, Florida. And a gentleman was walking the opposite way. And the ocean was washing up on the shore. And this guy had a cigar and he just tossed the butt right into the ocean. My dad uh, gave him a piece of his mind. Let's just put it that way. Does the guy pick it up? I don't recall if he did. I don't think uh, it was retrievable, to be honest. Uh, okay. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it was just, go, dad. You tell him what's what. You know, it's just gross. Like, what are you doing? Yeah, I know. It's a beautiful beach. On, don't throw shit on there. Yeah, it's just like, ugh. anyway, here's some questions for you, Bill Bant. Yes. Green sky at morning, neighbor take warning. Green sky at night, neighbor take flight. You ever heard that saying before? Is that a real thing? Is that a thing? I had no idea what the hell that was. And apparently I, I tried to do some superficial research. And I think that's just from this movie. That was just, that was an original piece of writing for this movie. People seem to quote that a lot, according to the superficial research I did. And there are t-shirts with this quote on it that have been oh. made up. I'd never heard it before or after. Yeah. I don't hear people on the street saying this. <laughs> Not that I would now, yeah. but you know what I mean? In the eighties that didn't, I didn't know this was. Yeah. I don't think we should portable quotes. T-shirts of that. They'd be sitting in a storage unit for a while. Cause I'm like, what, what is, what is, have you ever heard of a green sky, like a green sky at morning or a green sky at night? Like, I don't even know what that means. Like the Northern lights. Is that green? I don't know. Anyway. Hey man, was was there a haunted house in your neighborhood growing up, or was there a tall tale that your neighborhood kids would tell, or a rumor that had spread throughout your neighborhood about you know like a horror story or a true crime story? Well, we oh man, I don't know if I should share this one. Well, what the hell? It's been years. Yeah, we had a real life incident. Oof. Okay. Yeah, my next door neighbor was having a argument with his son and shot him dead. Oh, no. Living. Yep. The father shot, uh, shot the son? Yep. So supposedly the dad was drunk. I don't know. I can't remember what the fight was about. And it was weird because it's one of those things where we heard the gun go off, but didn't think it was a gun because it didn't sound like a gun on the movies. So I guess wow, the, that the, happened while you were at home. Yeah. So the father pulled it was a shotgun on his son, and then the son went to retrieve it, and the gun went off. And it ended oh, up my God. Killing it. Yeah. It was, yeah. Yeah, I was on the news and all that stuff, and the dad didn't go to jail, uh, but they did end up moving uh, like two years later. They they became super recluses after that one. Ah, uh, yeah. Wow, that's uh, that's tragic. Yeah, yeah. I think my brother actually found some old newspaper clips of it a couple of years ago and sent it to me. How about that? From when that happened. Yeah, I can't remember how long ago it was. And so, I mean, they were your neighbors. Did you know them then? Did you have any personal relationship with them? I don't mean to get too into this. I'm just like, uh, this is crazy. 
it was kind of like the kids and the mom were nice. The dad, not so much. Mm -hmm. The daughters actually used to babysit me. Sure. And uh, the son, I I mean, they were a couple of years old. He was always cool with me. He would always play around and stuff. And yeah, he's, yeah, he, he served in the military and all that too. And, um, man, yeah, it had to be like late twenties when he passed. Yeah. Wow. Wasn't expecting that. Okay. Yeah. I know, you know, in my town, it's funny because I did, I started thinking about all of my neighbors and I remember a lot of their names and, uh, in the little town of Lindenhurst where I grew up, there were, like you'd mentioned recluses, uh, there you know, were the nice neighbors. There were the nice, you know, not so nice neighbors, those that kept to themselves or just kind of, you felt like they were always looking at you sideways and you were like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to walk across their lawn. You know, I don't want to, oh, yeah. you know, you just, just kind of, you walked around their property at all costs, or you tried to not make too much noise if you knew they were home or whatever. You just wouldn't want to bother them for any reason. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think every town has those people. And it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them. It's just when people keep to themselves, it lends itself to mystery, right? You're just, you become curious. But yeah, there were some people that if you'd run across them, weren't the nicest of people, but hey, uh, that's how it goes. We all got to live together. But I don't have like a, a specific true crime story or, or uh, any kind of horror story. There was always the we lived next to a forest uh, or our neighborhood was near a forest called, I believe, McDonald Woods. And uh, there was always, you know, like, oh, there's a killer hiding out in the woods right. kind of thing. Don't go in there at night, especially and stuff like that. Friends would always dare you, like double dare you, go in there and do that, whatever. And uh, But that was about it. So, yeah, that's that's all I got, man. Uh, yeah, so let's move it on um, to recommendations. Um, do we recommend the burbs <laughs> to our audience? I don't even know why we do this, because I think by now most people know, but why not? Do, do I recommend this movie? <laughs> yeah. there. That's That I think pretty much says it. No, I don't. I don't recommend this. Don't make an effort to go see this. Hey, if you're home sick from school and it happens to be on, watch some of it. You'll catch, you know, watch it for Tom Hanks. Uh, There's some funny moments. But outside of that, it's just everything's on the surface. It's not a it's not worth finding out what happens. You may think it's engaging, but it's not a great payoff at the end. This isn't a terrible movie. I don't even think it's a bad movie. It's just so average for me. I can't with a good conscience endorse it. So that's it. I'm glad we watched it. I'm glad we talked about it. It is part of the 80s. Yeah. Um, if you look back at um, Tom Hanks's filmography of the 80s, there's definitely some highs and lows. Um, it really isn't until the after he does Bonfire of the Vanities where he really finds his stride, I think. Um, this is definitely one of the lows of the of the 80s. And somehow it is considered a cult classic now. And going back and watching that, I couldn't figure out why that is yeah that's that's interesting i don't yeah i I don't buy into the cult classic aspect yeah i would skip this like i said right before he did big that's you know that's really the one you want to see right after this was punchline maybe yeah according to his imdb yeah big punchline then this then turner and hooch and joe versus volcano but then yeah he gets into sleepless in seattle and then yeah, he's off to the races again in the 90s. And then, you know, you hit Forrest Gump, of course. And 
Philadelphia, and I think those might be out of order. Or are they? I don't know. But he wins the Oscars for those. Plenty of good and much, much better Tom Hanks choices as far as. Yeah. If you're a Tom Hanks completist, then yeah, uh, that would be the only reason I would say to watch it. (laughs) We found a reason to watch it. I mean, it's not horrible, but I I just don't know what you would get out of it, to be honest. Yeah. But, you know, like me, I would watch it anyway because I'll watch whatever. But. All right. So, yeah, I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Next week, we'll be having a special holiday mini-sode. And then the following week, we'll be discussing Above the Law, starring Steven Seagal and Pam Greer. Quick request from us here at the All 80s Movies Podcast. Please take the time to subscribe, give us a review, and rate us. Those subscribes and reviews really help us to continue producing the show. If you want to reach out, you can email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook Meta at All 80s Movies Podcast or tweet us at Podcast All 80s. Until then, have a totally great week, everyone. God, I love this street. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. Oh, shoot. I had it written down. Hold, please.